In today's episode, Kathy and Ellen give a brief overview of the case of Jesse Eldridge, whom in the next two episodes, we will hear from his wife, Patricia. Here is his story. Jesse Eldridge was born in 1963 in Troy, Michigan. He had an older sister and a younger sister born just one year later. In 1968, Jay and Carol Eldridge dropped five-year-old Jesse and four-year-old Tanya at the corner of Gradiot and Eight Mile Road, approximately one block from their grandmother's home. Carol called her mother from a payphone and told her where the two youngest kids were and that they were going to Texas with Christine, the oldest child. Jesse and Tanya, I'm sorry, Tanya were eventually adopted by Carol's cousin, Judy Perry, and her husband, John. When Jesse was 15, he decided to go see his real family in Texas. He wanted to be accepted by them. Carol and Jay had had three more boys by then, Jay Bryan, Daryl, and Troy. Things went from bad to worse pretty quickly, and Jesse moved in with a friend of Carol's, a single 22-year-old. Before he turned 16, Jesse became a father. He started drinking and doing drugs and got in trouble with the law. Jesse had two daughters with Susan before it was over, and in the summer of 1991, he was living in an apartment with his pregnant girlfriend, Tammy, his brother, Troy, and Troy's girlfriend, Shauna, in the Pleasant Grove area of Dallas, Texas. On July 25, 1991, a woman named Kiel Gove was murdered on the grounds of Grady Spruce, Grady Spruce High School. Three and a half years later, Jesse was arrested for this murder. Despite passing a polygraph administered by the best polygraph examiner in the country, he was taken to trial. The only evidence against Jesse was the testimony of his brother, Troy, who was angry with him. By this time, Jesse and Tammy had parted ways, and during a breakup between Troy and Shauna, Jesse hooked up with her for one night. A call came into Crime Stopper saying they should talk to Troy because he had information about the murder. It is believed that the caller was Carol Eldridge. Eldridge, and she and Troy set Jesse up for the money and revenge. Troy was manipulated by a cold case detective that was very good at his job. Jesse was convicted on January 19, 1996 and sentenced to life in prison. Okay, that's a really good uh, summation of the case. And I will say, when I first heard about Jesse's case, it wasn't really Jesse's case, it was uh, Kial Go's case, because I heard about it through the Truth and Justice podcast, and usually it starts out by looking at the crime and victimology, so it was a while before we heard anything off or from Jesse, and so when I Started out listening to that series. It's um, season three. Um, I was thinking this should be solvable. Like this case should be easy to solve because um, someone, I'm not, I was going to say the killer, but I don't know. Someone could, um, Kian goes, driver's license? No, key? Keys. 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 Put her house keys in her letterbox for her husband and, and son. 
So I thought it must be someone who knows her. Oh, yeah, that's right. It was the keys because that's not identifying. So it wasn't just someone found it and thought, oh, let me return this. It was someone who knew whose keys they were. And I thought that was very puzzling, but also very, okay, so maybe the person uh, who put the keys in the mailbox, they must have seen something or would be able to say something about where they found the keys or something. And then I thought maybe they were a witness because um, they care enough to return the keys, um, but they didn't want to come forward and talk about what they've seen. That, that's what I thought just when I heard about the crime and some of the circumstances. So it was like more like a crime mystery to me in, in the beginning. And I was uh, optimistic about, oh, maybe uh, it was a misunderstanding or something about Jesse and, and, you know, there must be some evidence that we didn't, because there was some evidence and some witnesses that saw someone that was definitely not Jesse because there were multiple people. So I thought, okay, that maybe someone will come forward and, and help fill this up. And then, um, we moved into hearing about a little bit about Jesse and I heard that story about how he was left in the street with his sister and that was so heartbreaking and shocking and um i was it had nothing to do with the fact if if uh, he was wrongfully convicted or not but it really made a great impression on me and um, <clears throat> and then we heard from jesse and he, for some reason because the uh, to me, Jesse seemed very matter of fact, but not, um, he was not hopeful. He was not, he was not, um, he didn't believe that anyone would help him and that any contact or he didn't believe anyone wanted to hear the truth. And when he said, when he realized that people were listening, he said that was that was all he needed. Like he didn't realize how much he needed to be, you know, heard. Because that's he came off as this was the most important thing to him, not what happened to him or what a crappy childhood or you know awful things that happened to him in prison. He was just very straight about prison is bad. You cannot be here when you're an old person. Because I see what happens and so my life has been really bad but the worst thing is that people think I committed this murder I yeah. can't and, and so he was just a very special person to hear from um, that he was not as mad about spending this amount of time in prison being sort of betrayed by not only police officers and but also his own family, it was a less upsetting to him than people thinking he was a murderer. Yeah. That he would hurt a woman or a child. Yeah. That's, he said that know. later on. He, that was just, that was so painful for him. Yes. And, uh, yeah, so that 
made it a really big impression on me, just just his demeanor, I guess. And then it was very obvious when when we started talking about this being a cold case and on the podcast they was the podcast was going through what was the evidence against him and there wasn't any There's none other than the testimony um of his brother Troy and I we had just been through another season um which was about uh serial um uh, Heyman Lee and and Adnan Sayed and it was the same thing where, so it was not like completely unthinkable to me that, um, you know, testimony can be false and, uh, uh, coerced. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I then they found out on the podcast as well that Troy had been interviewed plenty of times before the recording, which I was like, but of course, yeah. And that no recordings of those pre-interviews. That and we didn't know that at the time, but I think that I can't remember who said it. I think it was Bob or Troy who said that um he started out by saying he didn't know anything about this. Right. He he was not involved, Jesse was not involved, he didn't know anything about it. And the reason why they came to him and kept asking him about it was because they had that tip. Yeah. That he would know something about it, but he he said he insisted in the beginning, which is all the recordings that are not there. There is no uh, paper yeah. trail or recordings or transcripts with those interviews. Right. Yeah. Uh, he, yeah. He said that they um, the detective told him that his and Jesse's DNA was found at the scene, and you know he was gonna and that Jesse was in the next room saying that that Troy was the one who did it when it was all a lie. They didn't have any DNA at all and they hadn't even talked to Jesse, but they, you know, Troy was 19 years old. Um, They, you know, told him he was going to be locked up for this crime and, but they know Jesse did it. They know Jesse did it and they got him to, to agree. Yeah, but he, he wouldn't really agree, like he wouldn't make up stuff, or he had a really hard time making up stuff, Troy did, because they kept asking, was there a dog, what kind of dog was it, and he was like, was there a dog? Okay, it was a small dog, it was a big dog, it was a yeah. medium And there dog. was no dog. <laughs> and then and there was no dog, and yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was, he, you know... He was definitely um, coerced by a cold case detective that just wanted to close the case and yeah. put a lot of pressure on him, lied to him. Yeah. And, you know, that's something I think is wrong with our criminal justice system, that police officers are allowed to lie to you to try to get a confession or or information that, you know, you don't have. But then also, to my recollection, I think that Kiel Go's family at the time were upset that the police really weren't investigating at the right. time. And they could have done more because apparently there were more witnesses that were not spoken to. People had seen a car stop and someone 
a woman running for someone or something like that. But mm. that was not followed up on at the time. No, they didn't even um, collect the keys from from uh, Kenneth Gove. And for what? It was months. Wasn't it months later that they finally collected the keys? I, think I mean, so. there could have been fingerprints, DNA on there that they could have gotten from whoever put it in the mailbox. But they didn't yeah, even so, bother to pick them up. Yeah. So, and I am... Um, just think that we see a lot of wrongful conviction cases that are cold cases because it's hard to uh, prove your alibi, where you were, who you were with, and stuff like that uh, when it's been a couple of years. Yeah. And um, it's hard for the uh, defense team to do the investigation that the police should have done, and if they've not done it, like, I've seen cold cases, too, where the police had really investigated a lot, but they were just at a dead end. Yeah. And then none of that evidence was used later on. It was new eyewitnesses uh, or witnesses that heard something. Yeah. And, um, and it's, stuff like that. it's really hard to have an alibi for something that you don't know that you needed an alibi for. Especially you know? as more time passes on. Definitely. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I and, then, of course, and, and even back in you know, 1995 or in the 90s, we didn't have a phone. So it would be easier today. I could let it look at my phone and just my phone is telling me where I am at all times. But yeah. I don't even know where I was, like where I lived. Like eight years ago, I'm not sure if I lived in this house or the other place. I'm, yeah, you know, I I'm not because I'm getting, you know, so I'm not. It's not crystal clear to me who was was even with in a larger time period. Anyway, so that was concerning, and yeah. but I also another thing that stood out to me was that Jesse had a bench trial, and. Yes. Uh, in the beginning, when I was learning about uh, wrongful convictions and all these cases, I was like, oh, it's those jurors. Why do they believe everything that, you know, anyone says and the prosecutors? And why was this and that allowed? Because sometimes, you know, uh, prosecutors and defense do things that they're not allowed to. And so the judge will say, strike that. And so it's not allowed to be part of the case. But jurors have still heard it, whoever said it. So Yeah, you can't so unring a bell. No, exactly. And I would think that a judge, if it's only a judge, like a bench trial is that you say you waive your right to a jury and just go before a judge. Um, and people are usually advised to do this if, if, for example, the charges are really horrific because jurors are very or perceived to be more emotionally uh, inclined to to convict someone if the charges are really bad so sometimes defense attorneys will think well let's keep this before a judge who knows the law and can be more unimpacted for example but well ever since i heard about this case i definitely (laughs) Said, oh, not always when people are going 
like in different forms going, you know, they should get a bench trial. Why don't everybody get this before a judge? And I would be like, well, that's just one person. Yeah. Better say, safer with 13, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Because you have, you only have to convince one person in a jury of uh, 12 in, um, um, yeah. You don't have to in a bench trial, is one. No, yeah. well, yeah, in a bench trial, it's just one. But in a, a jury, it only takes one person to mm-hmm. to uh, disagree with the other mm-hmm. eleven, and, and, and you'll get a hung jury. Yeah, or a mistrial or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and that yeah. will never happen with a bench trial because the no. judge won't go against himself and go like for herself and exactly. go like, no, <laughs> just trial. Yeah. I'm going yeah. to do this again. So, yeah. Yeah. But the judge in Jesse's case was removed from the bench a few years later for misconduct. So, um, you know. Yeah. So there's a risk there because in, in all professions, you, you have people, you know. Right. It's, it's a good thing to have checks on each other. And, um, yeah, putting all your eggs in one basket uh, seems dangerous now but i totally completely understand the logic that you want it before like an impartial judge yeah but well yeah. this taught me something about yeah. the dangers of that yeah because you know you think that the judge knows the law and the judge knows to go on just the the facts of the case not emotion where jurors are going to allow emotion to come in but that's really probably not the best. I don't think I would do a bench trial if I was ever uh, on trial for anything. Nope. Well, a lot of things you should never do. Bench trials, maybe one of them, I don't know. But you should not also not go pro se and represent right. yourself. And yeah, right. there's a lot of issues. Although you could feel very much like it. I remember Jesse was not represented very well. No. And he, he knew at the time, like he just didn't think that it, that he could, that things could, that he could be convicted of something right. he didn't do. And, and Jesse is, he was very uh, firm about, and it, he's not talked to a lot of people, I think, before the podcast come out. And um, he hadn't had a visit for, yeah. long time from anyone else but his family and um he maybe kind of thought he was the only one this happened to like he, he believed yeah. in the justice system and thought well they got it right all the other times why yes what's with me like he thought that there was some very special um reason that he was you know that this happened to him yeah. and I I, I, I still am not sure that he knows that nothing to do with you with the system. This this happens uh, often. And, you know, full disclosure, I have become very close to Jesse. And the transformation from the Jesse I wrote to the very first time, to the Jesse that I got the first letter from, to the Jesse I talked to on the phone yesterday, is unbelievable. He was beat down. He was... He had no hope. And today he is very hopeful. 
and he's very upbeat and he really feels that he's got a chance of getting his conviction overturned. And I believe it too, because, you know, his brother recanted. That's the only evidence they had against him. They've got no physical evidence. They have, there were two alibi witnesses that his attorneys never even contacted um, who have uh, uh, filed affidavits with the, the court to, you know, to go with Troy's affidavit and the, the writ of habeas corpus um, that the Innocence Project of Texas is working on. So um, he's very upbeat now and and he has hope. Yeah, and also, he, I just, it was the case that made me realize that um, just the fact that a person who is innocent uh, and keeps getting turned down by every court and friends and family grow tired of visiting them because they sit in prison for decades. And uh, for them to know that uh, other people believe in their innocence is very important, even though it doesn't change their circumstances at all. But at least for Jesse, it's very, very apparent that it matters to him that more people know that he is innocent and people believe him. Yes. I think, I'm not sure, it's been a while, but I think he said, you know, you don't have to believe believe me. I don't even want to talk about it. You don't have to feel sorry for me. Nothing. Just look at the facts. Yep. Yeah. He was pretty reluctant to be on the podcast, I think. He, because he didn't see the point. Right. Nobody listens to me right. anyway. What is this? What do you want from me? Yeah. And yeah. it's amazing what, what is happening in the criminal justice world now with podcasts, with investigative um podcasts that are actually doing some good work and getting getting people out of prison innocent people out of prison um so yes and and not only getting them out of prison but also hopefully you know jesse he's still in prison and but Hopefully empowering them, the person in prison, but and also empowering the people around them. Yes. Who, who is the only support they have? And sometimes it, I remember another case from Truth and Justice where the person in prison was very isolated and very angry and just also had lost hope and didn't see anyone anymore because he just did not see the point right in the and it's hard to keep contact and he, yeah. he actually did not want bob's help and yeah but that was not jesse that was someone else but yeah it took some convincing yeah yeah but he, he's out now yeah for yeah. for different reasons but um yeah the one whose case was dropped no no it's just no Oh. It's uh second season, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Okay. So he he's not been exonerated yet, but he did get out. And right. he did have someone to come out to. That was also an yes. issue. Yes. Yeah, that's need- why the, the Innocence Project um started the client correspondence program because so many of them don't have any support 
they have no social skills. And so they started this program to get people to write to them and and give them, you know, have them practice social skills and and learn learn things. It's it's funny um, talking about Jesse yesterday. He's he's just amazed by some of the things in technology. Um, we had stopped at McDonald's and they have um, the kiosk where you order food. And I was telling Jesse about that. He's like, wait. They don't ask you if you want fries with that. <laughs> I said, no, not unless you go to the drive-through. <laughs> but you know, that's a thing that that we don't understand, and they don't understand is they have no concept of technology today. If they've been in prison for more than ten years, they've got you know things have changed so much, and and also just the knowledge that someone cares just yes. a little bit yes because when you're in a prison environment there's not a lot of care and uh, love and support in there at all so you need that from somewhere to feel like you can go on yes yeah that's something that um has been told to me several times with people that i've written to that just knowing that somebody acknowledges their existence is a huge thing because you know they so many family members have you know disappeared and you know from their lives and uh you know they they've moved on they've moved on with their lives because they're not in prison and it's it's difficult you know for them because they've got no one. Yeah, and how do you strike up new friendships with people yeah. from inside of prison? And right. it's very restricted. And and also, um, I don't know about Jesse, but he like he is always telling, I'm sure, telling you, Kathy, don't worry about me. Don't worry about me. Yes. You know, I'm worried about you. Yes. Are you okay? Go to the doctor. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. Get he was sleep, stuff like that. But um, yesterday, so, he he was really relieved. He said, "You sound so much better today than last week." He said, "I was really worried about you." Well, well that's what and, happens and, when you have pneumonia. <laughs> yeah, and and sometimes even though you lose your support system or friends and family when you go to prison and stay there for these long periods of time. Maybe you didn't have a great support system to start with, right? And um, and the, then you, yeah, then you're pretty doomed, and you don't know how how that works and how it can work for you. That uh, someone supports you and ex just yeah, like you said, Kathy, it's not much acknowledging someone's yeah. existence, yeah. but it, it means a lot. It um, means a lot to them. Yeah. Yeah. I know um, another case that we will talk about, um, Jamie, when I, you know, I told him I felt bad because I didn't do a whole lot of work on his case. And he said, your writing to me means more than you will ever know. It, he said it it really helps with um, self-esteem. It helps with, um, you know, the morale. It's it's very helpful, just something as simple as a letter. 
And also, I think Jesse did not perceive himself as a likable person. I think he said, no. I'm not a likable person. And uh, I'm sorry about that. That's just how it is. Yeah. And he and he really is a very likable person. He is. I know. Like I have, I wrote him just to let him know that you know I was shocked about his case and I believed in his innocence and that I was uh, upset on his behalf. And so he he's been a really truly great friend to me. Um, just by. Uh, Stuff like remembering what you tell, tell him like how's your daughter, what happened with the cats and the drama, stuff like that. It, it's uh, really helpful for me, but I don't. He has never had the chance to be somebody, a really good friend for somebody. Yeah, it, and it it helps them be a part of life outside of prison. You know, when you're including them in on on things going on in your life it you know it, and also gives them the experience to to be a, that maybe they have the wrong idea about themselves yeah that yeah. you know because usually assholes know they're assholes but nice people or good people don't know necessarily if people yeah. treat them like crap they'll think they're crap yes yeah a very basic uh psychological mechanism thank you for listening to today's episode please check back next week where we will hear from jesse's wife patricia